You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. The Albanese government has released an unclassified version of the long-awaited Defence Strategic Review. This roadmap for the Australian Defence Force over the next decade has been generally well received, albeit with questions about some of the specifics. On the positive side, the review carried out by former Defence Minister Stephen Smith and former Chief of the Defence Force Sir Angus Houston sets Australia on a new security trajectory that focuses the ADF very clearly on deterring China and other would-be adversaries. It advocates the need to do more of the regional security heavy lifting ourselves while also deepening our key partnerships. Among the lingering questions, however, are what specific capabilities we need to get there and whether we can fast track the necessary acquisitions given the government is flagging no spending hike over the next four years. To unpack what's in this seminal document, David Rowe speaks with Aspie's newly appointed Head of Defence Strategy, Beck Shrimpton, and Senior Analyst, Dr Malcolm Davis. Welcome to the Aspie Podcast. I'm David Rowe, and I'm here with Aspie's newly appointed Director of Defence Strategy, Beck Shrimpton, and Senior Aspie Analyst, Malcolm Davis. Guys, I do enjoy our chats. Thanks for coming on the podcast again. Thank you. Yeah, nice to see you again, Dave. So we've finally seen the Defence Strategic Review. I would say it's had a good overall evaluation in terms of the public commentary. It's positive in terms of what we need to do, where the ADF needs to be, but there's still a lot of detail to come, a lot of explanation to be teased out in terms of specific capabilities, obviously resourcing given the no net increase uh, in funding over the forward estimates, admittedly uh, an acknowledgement of a need for an increase over the decade, Uh, But general resourcing and timelines, uh, there are still a lot of questions around that. Let's start with you, Beck. Uh, This is a strategic level document, obviously. What is the strategy that the DSR outlines? Do you think it's the right strategy? And does it articulate it in a way that gives you confidence? This is a new approach. And uh, while it has a lot of wording and concepts that are familiar to people who have been around defence and national security strategy for a long time. What it's done is provide a, a, you know, a, a much greater focus, I think, and a greater articulation to what it means by those terms. So a lot of the time in the past, I think they've been used quite loosely with an expectation of, of you know, there being some flexibility within them. Here, um, national defence has replaced Defence of Australia. That is quite uh, an important change. Whole of government as an approach isn't new. Australia um, ultimately has a whole of government approach because of its Westminster system of government and its cabinet decision making. But what this does is is really make much more clear the role of diplomacy and statecraft. And that's very important. It's been acknowledged and talked about before. It hasn't necessarily been resourced before. There's that commitment here. So I like it. Um, The other thing that this document does is it gives a strategic concept centrality and for me that's the right one and it's deterrence again deterrence has been a word that's been bandied around for many years without a lot of people really understanding what that means Um, here we have an articulation of what uh, we in Australia um, and the defense planners and defense strategists 
mean by deterrence. And, uh, and that's important. It, it is whole of government. It is whole of nation. So again, moving beyond whole of government, um, it's not the first time we've talked about industry. It's not the first time we've talked about partners um, and essential processes and players outside of defence being really core to the success of defence in its mission. But we, we just have a, a greater clarity um, in this particular document for that than we've had before. Just before I, sorry, I have two more things I want to promise. I'll be really quick. But the, the two key things that give me confidence, Dave, um, are that there is process behind the idea. So the two yearly uh, national defence strategy process underpinned by a net assessment, the introduction of a net assessment. That is incredibly important and I know we'll get into what those things mean a little bit later, but those are those are the really important elements of the how. Um, so yeah, that gives me a bit of that gives me more confidence. Just staying with you for a moment, Beck, just in brief terms, what does it capture about the concept of deterrence that hadn't previously been captured by defence blueprints? Well, I think it's a bit of a no-brainer to say we we want to deter conflict. We don't want conflict to happen. Um, that that's always been the language. But uh, those of us who have worked in and around de deterrence, uh, when we think about force posture, when we're thinking about specific deterrence strategies, we understand that what you need for deterrence to be successful is a very clear understanding of who you are deterring and from what. So before it was just far too general. We just wanted to deter bad things from happening in and around our strategic environment and we didn't want to let anything penetrate the, you know, penetrate the Australian, um, you know, northern approaches or the Australian mainland. Now we have articulated a specific threat. It's a big, complex, ugly, difficult one, but we have articulated it. Uh, we have articulated a range of tools that we will use to go after it and we have articulated an operational kind of idea in projection and strike and long distance um, and we are actually now designing a force around that more focused, more disciplined idea of deterrence. So that's what's, that's what's different. So, and sorry, that threat being China? That threat being China and or any authoritarian or other threat to the rules-based order that provides us the general stability and environment for prosperity, including trade. Um, but yes, it does call out China as an actor that is directly threatening our interests through increasingly aggressive behaviour in regions that are in our primary uh, military operating area as defined by this document. We have seen direct dangerous actions in and against Australian military capabilities. And we do know um, that China, and again, we have called this out, is, uh, is ignoring important elements of the rules-based order upon which all of us, particularly middle order and smaller states, rely for fairness in an international system. Malcolm, to you, what's your overall assessment of the document? How good a job have Stephen Smith and Angus Houston done with this? Look, I think they've made a good job in terms of taking us on a different direction, away from the traditional parameters of Australian defence policy planning. Uh, they've responded to the growing threat from China. I think that the, it's the beginning of the process. It's not the end. 
And I think that's the key point that I want to make is that there's a lot of work left to be done to actually fill in all the gaps in this document, because I am surprised at how many gaps there are, given all the work that went into this after all those months of, of effort. There's still an awful lot of holes in there that need to be filled. But having said that, I think that they have set us on the right path. So we're heading down the right trajectory towards meeting that challenge or being better prepared to meet that challenge. And I think that where we need to go now is to move with great haste uh, and fill in those gaps. Um, it does concern me, for example, uh, that the uh, DSR uh, uh, talks about having a review of Naval Service Combatant Forces uh, going into quarter three of uh, 2023. Why wasn't that review done as part of the Defence Strategic Review? It seems nonsensical to me. So I think that there are other areas where there needs to be greater depth and substance. But you know, we are heading down the right direction. We're not sort of blindly following on, on autopilot where we were before in terms of you know, sort of just drifting along and, and hoping for the best. We're now recognising that there is a threat. We have to go back to first principles in terms of uh, the fundamentals of defence policy and prepare for that. So hopefully uh, that will take us uh, with some, as I said, with some great haste, uh, the ability to actually respond to the specific issues that need to be uh, addressed in this report. Do you want to just quickly summarise for us the other gaps as you see them? Well, I mean, sort of, uh, it talks about uh, an anti-access and error denial capability as the basis for a, a strategy of denial. Uh, but then it doesn't really um, provide credible capabilities beyond a short-range system. Uh, for anti-access and error denial, and I'm getting into the capability weeds here, uh, but it you know, obviously talks about uh, land-based um, missile systems such as PRISM, which have you know 600 kilometer range. Potentially, there's talk of expanding them to a thousand kilometers, which sounds a lot. But when you realise that the Chinese can launch DF-26s from the South China Sea and hit Darwin and Tyndall, it's not that much. So I think that uh, what we need to do is to be able to shoot the archer before he releases his arrow. And we're not doing that. We have this sort of limited reach beyond where we were in the past, but we're not getting far enough. So we need to start thinking seriously about really long range precision strike capabilities. And that could be something that we do through AUKUS Pillar 2, I think, with the Americans and the Brits to be able to develop that much more longer range capabilities. And of course, if you're going to strike at long range, you need to see at long range. So therefore, we need to invest in the appropriate uh, sensor to shoot a links, including space-based capabilities to, to enable that. And space is one of the areas which I think was dealt with quite well in the DSR. It actually had quite a bit of substance to it. Other areas that I, that I think I've, I've picked up is the surprisingly the air domain is lacking in in substance um, there's really three paragraphs of investment priorities in the air domain where they basically say well we're going to put more missiles on the f-35s and the fa-18fs not noting of course that the fa-18f super hornets are retired in the mid-2030s and then they say we're going to develop the mq-28 ghost bat that's good tick there and then they say, we don't need the B-21 Raider. And that's it. You know, there, there's no more substance to it after all these months. So I think that, you know, the air domain could be more substantially developed uh, to encompass how we use an air force to undertake long-range anti-access and air denial. And that's missing from the report.
We, we might come back to a couple of those points, although I'm nervous about asking you guys about space, uh, given we've only got an hour. Uh, <laughs> look, back to the high level, it, it, it talks about moving from a, a balanced force, which we've had in the past, to a focused force. Uh, previously, the ADF has been structured to do a little bit of everything, a bit here, a bit there. The, the review makes clear that it can only focus on the most significant priorities in terms of risk and everything else is secondary. I think it, it, uh, it talks about sort of having a latent effect out of the, 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 the primary focused force, which, which effectively is saying that, well, we can use it for other things, but it won't be specifically structured for other things. Playing devil's advocate for a moment, Malcolm, um, can you envisage scenarios in which in the future it is in Australia's interest to contribute to some particular international crisis, security crisis, but we simply don't have the capabilities to make that contribution because of the restructuring uh, we're doing? We're yes. Uh, I mean, the one thing that's missing from this report in terms of an analysing the strategic risks, of course, is the mention of Taiwan. Now, that may be in the classified document, uh, but it's not really dealt with in the unclassified version. They talk about the South China Sea, but not Taiwan. Taiwan is the number one threat that we face in terms of a Chinese move against Taiwan that would then bring in the United States, and the United States would then call on Australia and others to support it. So that's the scenario. That's the pathway that where we would enter into that major power conflict that we're trying to deter. And in terms of capabilities that we'd need for that, we'd need very long-range power projection capabilities to be able to work with the US Navy, uh, potentially within the second island chain. We do have naval forces, obviously, with the air warfare destroyers. Um, but until we see the uh, substance of the uh, naval surface fleet review, uh, we're not going to know just how many uh, warships we'll have. We won't have the nuclear submarines until 2033. So if Taiwan happens in the late 2020s or the second half of this decade, then we are stuck with what we've got. And I come back to my point about air power, the lack of long-range air power. The DSR essentially says that, and I quote, uh, that we do not consider the B-21 to be a suitable option uh, for acquisition. Okay, fair enough. But um, really, that's the sort of platform that we should have if we really want to project power at long range alongside the Americans. The other area that I think we, we need to invest in is integrated air and missile defense. And that's dealt with in the report, but it doesn't go into any detail. And in particular, I get the sense that it, it's essentially more of the same. It's short to medium range mindset on integrated air and missile defense rather than long range systems uh, that can counter the sort of threats like Chinese DF-26 missiles fired from the South China Sea against Northern Australia. And of course, there's the big elephant in the room, which is the reduction in armies close combat capability with the, uh, let's put it bluntly, the gutting of land 400 phase three. The army is understandably not happy about this. Yes, they're getting some, some longer range uh, strike capabilities with PRISM, but if they have to actually go in and deploy forward to seize a location to fire those PRISM missiles from, uh, they may lack the means to be able to seize that ground and hold that ground because they don't have the close combat capabilities, which would include the infantry fighting vehicles. I am concerned from a financial perspective that we are robbing Peter to pay Paul in terms of transferring capabilities away from other aspects of the ADF to fund essentially a shorter range A2 AD capability. And at the end of the day, if we have it, the, the, the nature of war in the Indo-Pacific is a hemispheric war. 
uh, it's a long-range, um, vast engagement zone. And if we only have short to medium-range systems, then we are not part of that game. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming that Taiwan is precisely the sort of scenario that we are actually going from balanced to focused for. Oh, is that not right? Or are we just not? Is it not being done? Is it, is it being laid out in insufficient detail or in I, I suspect in, that the government has, right. if they've dealt with it, they've dealt with it in the classified version. Um, I suspect that politically it's too delicate to actually put in the unclassified version as a, as a key driver for our preparations or our modernization or our defense policy because it, it reinforces the notion that, that if a Taiwan contingency happens, then yes, we will uh, join the war. I can't think of a scenario if the US does call on us that we would say no, but I think this government is probably not wanting to preempt that point. Uh, they want to leave that until the night before and basically say, well, now we're faced with a choice. We have to make that choice. So I think it's probably in the classified document that we're not seeing. But to me, there should have been some sort of mention in the unclassified, given that everyone understands it's Taiwan. It's all about Taiwan. It's all about China and Taiwan. And it's just not there. But Beck, your view on that? Yeah, I've got a slightly different, and it's and it's a point of nuance. It's not a disagreement Um I don't think Taiwan is the only scenario that we're thinking about here. Um, the document is really, really clear about the risks of miscalculation. And as I said, you know, we are seeing in the South China Sea, in other areas, increasingly aggressive, assertive and dangerous behaviour by the PLA and its various arms. There are no assurance mechanisms around um, what China is doing with its military modernisation. It's not telling anyone why it's doing what it's doing and what its scenarios uh, that it has in mind are. Wouldn't expect it to, mind you, but it's it's certainly not. Now, where you would expect a power, the, the type um, of which China describes itself as, you know, a significant major superpower, um, it refuses to engage in nuclear talks with the United States and even others, including Russia, for example or multilateral talks, it, it, you know, the fact that it just blatantly will not enter into any kind of mechanism that enables stability and, and reduces risk, to me says that we're not just worried about Taiwan, we're worried about miscalculation happening potentially in the South China Sea in an incident again that goes beyond uh, where it was intended to, even in, even in the Pacific or in, in Southeast Asia, you know, genuine you know, patrols that set out to be just that um, when you're when you've got the lack of communication, the lack of protocols, the lack of a hotline, um, you know, all of these mechanisms that serve to provide some kind of stability in the past, um, the risks are huge and it does bring them closer. It brings them a lot closer than Taiwan. And I suspect that in a Taiwan contingency, we're actually probably uh, not looking like we're not the closest powers. We don't have the most military capability to contribute there. So I wouldn't think that we are gearing up solely for a Taiwan contingency at all. But the risk, as we see it, is from China. It's lack of, again, communication, protocols, willingness to provide reassurance. Russia acting way out of areas that it has traditionally acted in. Um, the DPRK doing, you know, 
firing off missiles, being incredibly provocative. There are a range of issues that could trigger a conflict with very, very little notice and without the intent of actually triggering a conflict. And I think that's what we're trying to gear up for is just to try and make sure that whatever happens, we can confront it as far away as possible and with the greatest precision and lethality that we can bring to the fight. And we do that always in the context of working with others. We have never gone to war or gone into an operation on our own. Even when you look at Timor, we knew we had the Americans close by, even Interfet. We knew we had an Amer American amphibious ship sitting over the horizon. We do not go into conflict on our own. So let's remember that while we have uh, a really strong sort of sovereignty and self-reliance drive, that's about making sure that we're capable, that we can bring something to the fight and that we're not reliant on others. But at the same time, it makes us a, you know, a better and a stronger part of a collective security whole. Uh, and that's really what we need to think about when we're thinking about and when we're looking at this force structure and this force design and this strategy. Beck, the document puts some emphasis on net assessment. I confess I found it an innocuous phrase that I probably would have read over uh, had I read the entire review uh, three times. You, however, were quite excited about it. Just explain <laughs> what, what is net assessment? Why yeah. was it so significant to you? So net assessment is really important because um, you know, often it, it's it's something that that we we probably do in an, most closely in the intelligence community. It's a very holistic understanding in the defence context. What it means is basically a comparative analysis of all of the elements of power. And here we're talking military, political, economic technological and other factors that contribute to the relative military capability of nations. So what this is doing and what we don't currently do within defence is that really holistic analysis, comparative analysis of what goes into Australian military capability and military power and military effect. What's going into China's? What's going into Japan's? What's going into India's? And so what, right? Because you, if you're just looking at militaries, if you're just looking at numbers of ships, if you're just looking at numbers of aeroplanes, um, it's actually pretty limited in what that tells you about how a nation will go to war and, and how effective it might be in war and then you know, the net resources and the net capability that it brings uh, brings to the fight. So that's why I'm super excited about it. Um, net assessment's really important. It's something other countries do well. It's something I think we've relied on other countries' assessments before to do. Um, I love the fact that we're talking about this and I love the fact that it's linked to this two-year process of national defence strategy, which again, you know, people say, oh, why do you need to do it every two years? You know, maybe you don't. I say, yeah, you do. You absolutely do because the discipline involved in the cycle of this continuous assessment of looking at, you know, linking this net assessment and understanding all of the various aspects that go into military power and then turning that into strategy and not having to stand up a team, you know, dust off a process every, you know, four or five years, which is what we do now, um, updates are incrementalism. This, this will allow us to be truly adaptive to actually learn. Now, we have to be committed to that. These are big ideas but at least we have processes that will enable it to happen. Whether that does, 
uh, again, is up to the leadership of defence and the rest of government. It's up to the resources provided to defence and there are big questions about whether they're going to get enough. But I think, you know, those mechanisms, mechanisms matter to implementation and I think those are there for me in a way they haven't been many times before in strategic documents. Beck, I want to get your thoughts on Army. Malcolm described uh, a gutting of land 400. Numerically, that's certainly justified 450 down to 129. But what's the purpose of this? What I mean, Army's traditionally been there for, 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 for land warfare. Uh, Beck, I think you've compared the situation that they're envisaging in the future to be more like a US Marines uh, type force. Just imagine for a moment that you're a soldier 10 years into your career. What what might you have expected to encounter when you joined and what are you now looking at for the rest of your career? Yeah, well, this is again why it comes, it's going to come back so strongly to, to leadership and implementation. The world has changed significantly in those 10 years. So if I was if I was a soldier 10 years ago, my expectations would have been fighting the kind of fight that, that we are seeing right now in Ukraine. And to be honest, we may still end up in a fight like that. You never you never know. We're far less likely to because of our maritime environment and that there are others that are probably likely to constitute the main elements of those kinds of conventional close combat sort of forces and we will be a part of, not a whole of one. Nonetheless, you know, a lot of soldiers, and I, I have sympathy for them, who joined 10 years ago are, are looking at this and saying, wow, this is not the army that I joined and this is not the role I thought I would have. That said, this is a role that fits the strategy. It is focused. It is delivering genuine capability to army but it's going to take a real attitudinal change and again you know that's going to come back to the leadership sort of stressing to the army its role within this broader concept and again comes back to deterrence and the idea of of keeping threats as far away from our shores as possible it fits it just fits the the strategy and we do not have infinite resources so we do have to make really hard choices where army is being bolstered a little not just in the strike capability but is in the uh in some of the areas where it has traditionally been used in the last 20 years and a lot of soldiers are right really incredibly proud of their service in places like timor solomon's bougainville a lot of humanitarian assistance and disaster relief so you know littoral craft they, they give you combat capability but they also give you really strong humanitarian assistance and disaster relief capability that's an incredibly important strategic role that our our army um and our navy of course and air force play in our region so i would you know i, I understand that there is um there's going to be a lot of a lot of sensitivity within parts of army but i think um anyone who saw the chief of army's message and some of his key um directions i guess around the dsr and his his interpretation of it for army i, I you know i think he was spot on he was he was sensitive to to the um to the interpretation of loss and of, of army being seen as a loser. But he, I think, very nicely articulated what this means for army and how important it is and, and that the army's role is actually um, become more important, more focused, and I think it actually gives army, um, you know, a greater role in more likely scenarios than perhaps people might have imagined 10 years ago. 
Let's talk a bit about acquisitions. Uh, there's obviously been a long history of slow, complex acquisitions. Uh, the review, to its credit, acknowledges that the current approach doesn't match the sense of urgency that we now have. It even says that defence is getting overwhelmed by the complexity and the volume of acquisitions and that that has to change. There's a real sense of no longer making the perfect the enemy of the good. Malcolm, starting with you, what's your assessment of uh, how it deals with acquisitions? Does it get the right sense of revolution that's required and how easy or difficult is it going to be a, a, for, a, for an organisation like Defence, 100,000 people plus industry to actually make this well, adjustment? Look, I think the Defence Review does get it right in the sense that it recognises there's a key vulnerability there that we have been too slow uh, in terms of our acquisition process. We've been drifting forward on autopilot and, and content to sort of run with 10-year or 20-year acquisition cycles, which is no longer going to cut it. It's no longer fit for purpose in today's uh, strategic environment. But the key question in my mind is, how do they actually get that change to happen? And how do they get it to happen quickly? Because we don't have time for essentially 10 years to elapse before we transition into the new model and suddenly we're getting things faster. We need to get things faster as of now, really, and we've got a three to five year timeline. I take Beck's point about there's other scenarios that could draw us into conflict, but if we are talking Taiwan, it's three to five years. So um, we need to start thinking about how can defence make changes quickly so that it can start getting capability quickly? And the answer is not more reviews. Uh, the answer is military off the shelf. Uh, and yes, I know there's a, there's a, a sensitive issue there in terms of defence industry and how do you have Australian industry content in, in capabilities and so forth. But strategic needs must uh, outweigh um, economic imperatives in this particular instance. Just to be fair, I mean, I think the, the review does specifically yep. mention off the shelf as, um, as an... Then we need to do it. Yes. Uh, we need to actually uh, put, uh, put that front and centre and actually start think, looking at capabilities. And um, one of the things that mystified me was that uh, Richard Miles today saying that uh, GUIO, the Guided Weapons and Explosive Ordnance Enterprise, will be ready in two years to start producing weapons. You know, uh, I think that uh, why, uh, when we could buy off the shelf? Yes, I accept the fact that there's a there's a gap there in terms of guided weapons, given that some of the weapons that the US has been producing has been going to Ukraine, so stockpiles are down and so forth. But we really should be moving very quickly to buy capabilities off the shelf as much as possible. They're available off the shelf? Well, that's the, the key the question. I think that's what needs to, need, needs to be determined. We need to determine what weapons we're getting. Um, are they available? How many do we need? It's no good getting small amounts of each weapon. Uh, so if we're talking about missiles for anti-access and denial capability. I think Ukraine has demonstrated the absolute furious pace at which wet munitions are devoured each day. Uh, and if we're talking about an Australian scenario of protracted high-intensity warfare, then we're going to need to keep uh, operations running day in, day out for, for weeks or months, if not longer. So we need to buy in bulk, we need to produce in bulk, uh, and we need to do it quickly. Another area that, that was missing was um, a constant theme leading up to the DSR, which was drones, wasn't there. Now, why are we, why are we not talking about producing uh, drone technologies you know, beyond the MQ-28 ghost back? We need that in bulk. We need that in mass. So I think it's right that the DSR is saying, 
yes, we need to shift gears. We need to take a new approach to acquisition. That Everyone understands that, but the question is how do they do it? It's got to be military off the shelf and it's got to be moving with speed, and I'm not sure that they'll do that. I suspect it will still continue to plod along and we don't have time for that. And it's this uh, fallback on reviews after the review that really does worry me. Beck, do you agree with that? Yep. When you uh, when you asked the question, or when you when you acknowledged that the the report or the review said yes, you know we're going to need to buy more off the shelf. Um, I, I, I almost want to jump in and said off mm. what shelf, right. um, off whose shelf? Um, you know, you know, there's a real tension that we've got going between our big sovereign industrial development drive, and that that brings us to Guio. Is, isn't, uh, there no, is, isn't there well, a shelf? Isn't there a supermarket where you can walk in, around? In two, well, <laughs> well, wouldn't that be nice? Um, apparently in, in two years there might be a shelf for, for you know, guarded weapons and explosive ordnance. Uh, in the meantime, what shelf? Um, you know, the easy answer is, is the US. That's not an easy answer unless we're prepared to really, um, you know, hold our good American friends' feet to the fire on things like export control regime and ITAR. Um, you know, they are, two, they are two different things. They affect exports and they affect our ability to sell, um, you know, or safely or share IP or develop capability with the US. Unless things change there, Actually, you know, the US shelf isn't necessarily the one we want either. That comes with its own problems. But, you know, this is why we created AUKUS and this is why AUKUS has got to demonstrate some progress really quickly on these important issues. So, you know, look, look, I do agree. We've got to, we've got to start but you know we do have to buy stuff and the and the easy solution especially for some of the commercial off the shelf military off the shelf for the immediate needs yeah we can get those from our from our good friends but as we start to talk about increasingly growing our own capability to develop more sophisticated industry and uh, and to build our own industry there are a couple of things we need to do you know a yep we've got to break through some barriers with the united states b our risk appetite has got to change substantially we are ex exporting really great australian industry capability before we buy it ourselves um, that's kind of an attitude change within within defense and within government that has to change there has been a strong desire for proven demonstrated capabilities, but we're asking our own companies to go and prove themselves elsewhere before we buy their stuff. And actually their stuff is so great that they, you know, we're then third and fourth in line to get our own industry capability to our own military. So that's, that's a bit crazy. Um, we've got to have a really good look at that sort of stuff. And, yeah, we've got to look at um, commercial we do not, we just, this comes back to risk appetite, but it's not just military off the shelf, it's commercial off the shelf. There is so much commercial capability around at the moment with military application. This strategic review does, it does make references to that. And I think that there is intent to move in the right direction, but we're just going to have to wait and see what that, what that um, turns into. But there's huge, huge opportunity within the commercial dual use technology field with, sector. With, uh, with Ukraine being a, a real time demonstration. Absolutely. absolutely, absolutely. Really conventional warfare, but showing just how brand new capabilities, commercial capabilities and, um, and different capabilities 
realities like you know space space and 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 cyber the ones that have been brought much more to the fore in this review have really played an important role i suppose the tension between speed and sovereignty which is one where i've always found myself having a bit of sympathy for defense and for casg around these kind of constant parallel demands to uh to get both of them right keeping that in mind for a moment uh Beck, you uh, co-wrote a piece uh, this week uh, looking at self-reliance as an idea that was um, discussed in the review. It was echoed by PM Albanese and DPM Miles uh, later that day. Talking about self-reliance to describe the sort of mindset that we need to get ourselves into, that being uh, different from self-sufficiency, also talking at the same time about partnerships, the need for self-reliance, but also partnerships. It does sound like a contradiction probably to a lot of people. Just explain the concept there. Explain the context in which we need to be both self-reliant and uh, work more closely with partners. Yeah, um, excellent question. Self, self-reliance self as a concept is is not about acting independently or acting alone. And, and this is where we've, we've had an increasing sophistication in the conversation around sovereignty and what we mean by sovereign capability. And it doesn't mean owning, making and operating everything. It's about access and being able to get what you need when you need it and trusting that. Now, when we're talking about self-reliance here, if we are stronger, if we are more able to bring more to the table Uh, both for ourselves to protect and defend Australia and to have this, you know, to implement this national defence approach uh, that this strategy is. If if we are more self-reliant, we bring more to a collective security arrangement, be that ANZUS, be that AUKUS, be that the trilateral, be that, um, you know, something like the quad in some of the softer security sensors. Self-reliance makes us stronger and it makes the collective effort stronger. Um, So partnerships absolutely go along self-reliance. And if we're moving along a a more self-reliant path, we want our other partners to do that too. Um, because the rising tide lifts all boats. Um, so that's really what this is about. It's about saying, look, this is not just, a, this is not about us becoming, you know, Fortress Australia and, and we're going to do it all ourselves and we're going to do it alone. And it's, it's not about independence, but it is about knowing that we can do what we feel we really have to be able to do, that we can access the capabilities that we really need to be able to access to look after ourselves, but also that um, as we think about collective defence and we always have and we always will, we are too small not to, that really fits into thinking about partnerships and leveraging partnerships and making sure that other partners are doing their bit too. Um, so if everyone was was increasing self-reliance, then um, you know, we're all going to be collectively in a better place. Of course, the success of all of this does still hinge on the government making a politically persuasive case to the Australian people that all of this is necessary. I don't think it, too many people would envy Jim Chalmers or Katie Gallagher right now with the sort of budget balancing act, juggling act that they have to perform at the moment. How successful does each of you think that the government has been in actually moving the conversation forward this week around the release of the review in bringing 
the Australian people to the kind of mindset that says, okay, what existed in the past is not going to exist in the future. Greater investment in defence and security are going to be absolutely essential. The alternative is going to come at a much, much greater cost over the long term. And really without this kind of investment, then a lot of the things that we currently take for granted, we, we simply won't be able to rely on anymore. Malcolm, you first. How much progress do you think we've made this week? I think we've made some progress. I think the the, the nature of the discussion within the strategic policy community uh, will shift because this has now given some formal policy top cover uh, to actually pushing us forward down the path of of thinking about how we prepare for those threats in the future and getting us away from sort of traditional status quo balance force to a more pointed, directed, forward force, uh, focused force uh, that is focused on impactful projections. So that's a good thing. I think that there now needs to be the resources applied to make it meaningful. What the government needs to do is start preparing the ground for more significant defence spending rather than 2.1%. Let's let's talk about 3% or 3.5%. The question is, where does that money come from? Uh, as you say, the, government, the country is facing economic headwinds because the entire global economic system is. And so therefore, you know, the budget that comes out in May will probably be not a good one. Uh, so it's a challenging situation. We're facing increasing strategic risk of war right at the point when we're least able to prepare for it financially and the government has to somehow square that circle. This is a start to that process of, of, of dealing with that, that crisis, of dealing with that issue, but it's not a complete solution. And the government can't rest on its laurels and say, well, the DSR is out, problem solved, let's move on. It's got to build on this and it's got to take it forward. And I think the, the, the national defence strategy approach of once every two years is the good way to do it because it keeps that issue alive. To me, um, this is a really important conversation to be having with the Australian people and the release of this review is the start of that conversation. It cannot be the end of it. I also think, look, it's, um, it's a slightly timid approach. It's it's safe. I think the, uh, the, the government is hedging here that it's not changing uh, the budget or it's not increasing any costs over the forward estimates but does say it will increase uh, the defence budget over time. That's okay, but, you know, I think it's, it, is, it, is, it is something of, of this hedge. I think the risk here is that what the government needs to be talking about is a really bold, holistic economic strategy for the country. Um, you can't talk about the defence budget in isolation and that sets us up for these kinds of conversations where we think that it's binary, that, you know, that you, we cannot have a net gain for defence, for health and education. I personally believe we can and we should, but we're not having that conversation at all at the national level. Um, the, this government is putting a lot of um, stock in technology and advanced manufacturing. It's investing a lot of money. That has the capacity to have multi-sectoral impact um, and to achieve efficiency, to save sort of money in and around people and address some of the people problems, to, to you know, put people into new jobs and to reskill and to more highly skill, but we're not having that conversation. So for me, let's not just talk about the defence budget and what we need for defence, 
let's talk about what we need as for national defense we've been given that framework now by this this strategy and let's try really really hard to not allow this conversation to turn into if defense wins then health and education loses um, that does not need to be the case and i think again you know it's about having a holistic economic vision that is bold i know we're facing headwinds but we also as a country have some really unique opportunities and i don't think we're necessarily knitting them together terribly well or taking them all yet so again i want to i'd like to see a bit more on that sort of you know from from the from the treasurer i'm looking forward to to the budget and what it has for um for everyone across all sectors but again you know bold economic whole of nation strategy that's how we can get past some of these conversations where we think, you know, there has to be losers. Yeah, really important points. Well, guys, I think that's a, a great conversation. Thank you. Um, I think we all agree that certainly as a uh, the setting of a new direction, it's um, it's an enormously useful and interesting document. Uh, listeners who haven't had a chance to read it, I, I do recommend it. It's actually a pretty readable, by, by government standards, what is it, 100 and 110 pages, admirable for its brevity, in fact, but, um, but certainly it's, a, it's, it's an important document. Malcolm and Beck, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and we'll hopefully talk again soon. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Malcolm. That's all we have time for today on policy, guns and money. Thanks for listening.